Glad to see everyone here. I'd like to think it was because I was preaching, but I understand there was a wedding last night that uh, drew a lot of visitors into town. We're certainly honored to have each of you here. Brother Jerry's in the audience, a studier of Revelations and uh, a, a gentleman that has given sermons here on Revelations, and here I am standing up here. Brother Jerry, you should be speaking. We're going to talk about one of the seven churches. We've been talking about them as we go along, and this morning we're on Pergamum. And Pergamum was a, a city that was uh, built on a hill or an acropolis. It had an upper part and a lower part. And uh, I stumbled onto a video recreating of Pergamum in about the year 125 A.D. So it's about maybe 30 or so years after this letter is written, but it's certainly at the same time that Christians that got the letter were uh, trying to worship there. So I'm going to play that video. It kind of walks through the city here as you see it on top of the hill. It starts with... Um, a great aqueduct that uh, brought water into the hill, into the city that also served as a road. It had a great theater here, set over 80,000 people, had many, many temples, including the temple right here, the temple of Zeus, the, the kind of the king of all of their uh, pagan gods. This temple has actually been recreated. It was torn down. Um, the, the ruins of it were torn down. It's been recreated in Berlin. Uh, so you can go to the uh, the, the uh, uh, museum there in Berlin. This is one of the temples that sat at the highest point. It's the Temple of Trajan, which was the uh, Roman ruling god at the time the temple was built. He died before it was finished. Herodias took over, and both Trajan and um, Herodias were worshipped here as the, uh, t at the time of uh, the Christians there. They spent a lot of time, not the Christians, but the cities worshipped the rulers. So they worshipped the rulers of Rome um, in this uh, temple, particularly Trajan that started the temple and Herodian that, um, that, uh, that uh, became emperor after Trajan. So you see a lot of different, you see the, see the theater that we mentioned, you see the theater stoa. A stoa is just a covered walkway. And apparently they didn't like to get in the rain because you see stoas all over the place where they basically uh, were able to walk on sidewalks and uh, be undercover. The upper agora, agora is a marketplace. You see the, uh, the temple, you see a temple here, a temple there, a temple there, a great altar there. You see a sanctuary of the ruler cult. That one intrigued me. Um, the sanctuary of the ruler cult, as I understand it, not a lot's written about it, but as I understand it, it was whatever religion that the Roman ruler back in Roman Rome declared was a national religion. Whatever that national religion of the ruler was, they worshiped there. So cult might be... Well, it might be appropriate the way we think of cult, but they used cult back then just to mean religion or a group of people that were sacrificing and doing those types of things. Um, let's see, the temple of uh, the uh, temple of Dionysus. She was the temple of basically partying, so naturally she'd be right outside the theater and everything else. But um, let's see, I got some notes. Was the Olympian god of wine, vegetation, pleasure, festivity, madness, and wild frenzy. So um, she, she was the, the, the goddess of, of uh, wildness. 
the uh, great altar of Zeus, again, recreated in Berlin. Supposedly, we can go and walk through that. I saw some pictures of that. It, it looked very similar to the, the video that we walked through. Temple of Athena. So, think Athena was the goddess of war. She was the protectorate of the city, according to their religion. A library, one of the, one of the largest and best in the, the, the uh, area, over 200,000 manuscripts. It's said that we get the word parchment from this uh, city and from this, this library. Um, and along the back, a lot of, uh, of uh, castles and, and the palaces and then the barracks that protected the city. Just another view from the side where you can see some of the palaces back here. There's an upper agora, a lower agora. And uh, so all, basically all the way up and down this mountain, the city of Pergamon. But they also faced not only the temples that we've seen here, but many other. There was just all types of uh, pagan worship going on in this city around our Christian brothers and sisters that, that Jesus or the Lord writes this letter to through uh, John. So we remember, everyone has talked about these letters. Remember, Jesus was walking among the candlesticks. Symbolically saying, I know these churches, I know you, I've been there, I'm with you, I understand your struggles. And we see that in his letters, they're very personal and very pinpointed at that particular church. This sanctuary of, however you say that, Escopius, was um, actually the sanctuary that, uh, that was actually the first psychological hospital in the world, supposedly. So they, um, it was kind of a hospital, kind of a, but there was a lot of, crazy rituals and other things. They worship the snake, which I think now is part of our medical symbol, as I recall, but um, the, uh, the snake, that's where all of that came from back in um, 100, uh, 100 um, A.D. So a lot of things going on here around the Christians, and as we start getting into this letter here in Revelations, I just wanted you to understand kind of what they were seeing every day in their lives. And that doesn't do it justice as to how those sacrifices and how those religions and how those cults were actually um, the pressure that they were putting on them. But I believe the Lord through John gives us some pretty good ideas about that in this letter. Write this letter to the angels of the church in Pergamon. Here is a message from the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. So talking about Jesus, and this is the second time in Revelations that they've used this, uh, this uh, speech, this um, uh, figurative speech about the Lord and this two-edged sword. And remember back in Hebrews it talks about that the, the, the Lord's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to, 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 to divide about bone and marrow and thoughts and intents and soul and, and um, spirit. And so God through his word has got the ability to be very pinpointed and very sharp and very focused and he is here with these uh, Revelation brethren. He goes on to say, I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne, but you are true to me. You do not refuse to tell about your faith in me, even during the time of Antipas. Antipas was my faithful witness who was killed in your city, the city where Satan lives. So as we have, um, as we've gone through these letters, a lot of these Christians are facing the same things. But I don't know that any of them are facing it any greater than here at Pergamon. Think about living in a city characterized by the phraseology that this is where Satan lives. This is where he has his throne. 
He's here. He's active. He's involved in this city. He says it here twice to give emphasis to the intensity of what these Christians, these brothers and sisters were facing. It was not easy for them. In fact, it says that Antipas had given his life, had been martyred for it. And some people think Antipas, think that that is a, um, a literal name. Others think it's figurative. The, the, his name comes from against the gods or against the fathers or against the rulers. And so whether that is a uh, figuratively saying that there were Christians that were dying there because they were against all this pagan worship, or whether it's literally saying there was a guy named Antipas that gave his life because of his fight against all the gods that the pagans were worshiping. What it's saying is people were, people were not compromising. People were standing up for what they believed there in Pergamon, and they were dying. Now, some of, the, some of our denominational brothers have created a very nice backstory for Antipas, and you can go read it and figure out, but there's the, there's the legend that the way that he was actually sacrificed was what they called the bronze bull. And so I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there was a huge bronze bull, and they would tie up the person and stuff them up in the upper part of the bronze bull, close it all up, and then light a fire under it and roast them inside the bronze bull alive. And as they screamed and hollered, their voice would come out of the mouth of the bull. Um, and so that was the way that Antipas, according to some of the legend, was actually martyred. But that's that is uh, that's not based by and that's not backed up by any historians. But what it does say is that there was stuff like that going on, and there were Christians that were giving their life. And here in Pergamum, it was uh, it was a huge problem because they were trying to walk every day, earn a business, earn earn a living, and be Christians in a city where Satan lived and Satan dwelled. Very very much uh, opposed to them. So, in uh, starting in verse number 14, it says, But I have a few things against you. You have people there who follow the teachings of Balaam. Balaam taught Balak how to make the people of Israel sin. They sinned by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. It is the same in your group. You have people who follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans. It's the same in your group. So there were some there in the church claiming to be Christians that were, that were following after and breaking off and doing some of the things of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Jer uh, uh, yeah, Brother Jeremy talked about uh, the church and, it, and one of the other churches that mentioned the Nicolaitans. I said, are you going to cover that? He said, no, you can cover that. It's in yours too. <laughs> And the reason is there's not a lot known about the Nicolaitans. There are some theories that a fellow named Nicholas started the religion. But um, one of the interesting word studies that somebody had done that I thought um, was interesting, so we've got Balak, Balaam, and the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans, uh, if you divide it out in the Greek, can mean exactly the same thing that Balaam does in the Hebrew. So Nicolaitans could be... Um, Nikon, which means to conquer, and Laos, which means people, and, and Balaam in Hebrew means to conquer the people. So uh, the, the words have very similar roots and very similar meanings, and the way that they were conquering the people is very clear there in the verse. They were conquering the people by, by getting them to start to worship idols and through sexual sin. 
And so that's what was going on, and that's what was happening here in the church. In Acts chapter 15 and verse number 29, it tells uh, to not eat the, uh, the food that's offered to idols, and, and not to not to be involved in sexual sin. And then here, a few years later, after the churches have been established, it's going on in Pergamon. I wanted to do a little historical background on Balaam and Balak, just so that everybody understands what was going on and why God hated it so much. So let's go back to, um, we're going to be in Numbers 25, beginning in verse number 1. It says, While the Israelites were camped near Acacia, the men committed sexual sin with Moabite women. The Moabite women invited the men to come and join in their sacrifices to their false gods. So, were, so the Israelites joined in worshiping these false gods. They ate the sacrifices and worshiped these gods. There the Israelites began worshiping the false god Balaam of Peor, Baal of Peor, and the Lord became very angry with them. The Lord said to Moses, Get all the leaders of these people, then kill them, so that all the people may see. Lay their bodies before the Lord. Then the Lord will not show his anger against all the Israelites. So Moses said to the Israelite judges, Each of you must find the men in your tribe who have led people to worship the false god Baal of Peor. Then you must kill these men. At the time Moses and all the elders of Israel were gathered together at the entrance to the meeting tent, an Israelite man brought a Midianite woman home to his brother. He did this where Moses and all the leaders could see. Moses and the leaders were very sad. Phineas, had, Phineas was the son of Eleazar and the grandson of Aaron and the priest. Phineas saw this man bring the woman into the camp. So he left the meeting and got his spear. He followed the Israelite into the tent. He used the spear to kill the Israelite man and the Midianite woman in her tent. He pushed the spear through both of their bodies. At that time, there was a great sickness among the Israelites, but when Phineas had killed these two people, the sickness stopped. A total of 24,000 people died from the sickness. So they began to compromise. They began to go against what God had asked them to do. <clears throat> so in Numbers 31, it brings this together. It says in Numbers 31, beginning at the very first in verse number one, that Moses directs the Israelites to gather 1,000 men from each of the 12 tribes, 12,000 men, and let's go, we're going to go uh, uh, destroy the Moabites. Just a couple chapters after what happened. And, and then uh, Phonus, son of Eleazar, goes as well with the holy things. They kill five Midianite kings and all the Midianite men. They kill Balaam, the son of Boy that started all of this, with sword. They took the women and children prisoner, they brought back the animals, and they burned the cities that they left. And when they all get back, here's what happens. Then Moses, Eleazar the priest, and the leaders of the people went out of the camp to meet the soldiers. Moses was very angry with the leaders of the army, the commanders of the thousand and the commanders of the 100 men who came back from the war. Moses said to them, why did you let the women live? These are the women who listened to Balaam and caused the men of Israel to turn away from the Lord that time at Peor. So remember back in verse, back in the chapter that we just read, that time at Peor, that was the story. The disease will come to the Lord's people again. Now kill all the Midianite boys and kill all the Midianite women who have had sexual relations with a man. You can let the young girls live, but only if they've not had sexual relations with a man. So we've got this, this uh, story and it says, these are the women who listened to Balaam and caused the men of Israel to turn away from the Lord that time at Peor. So these, um, Balaam has kind of through um, historical reference all through the lives of the, 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 uh, the Israel, Israelite people, 
he had became symbolic of this kind of stuff, this sexual sin, this uh, idol worship. And so when the letter is written to the church there in Pergamon, they understand this reference very well. They understand and remember this story of 24,000 people dying uh, because of their compromise against the church and against, at that time, the, the uh, Israelite nation. So what is, our, what is our compromise? Where do we draw the line? We spent a lot of time Wednesday night in Bible study trying to define that for ourselves. I'm not sure we did. We, uh, we kind of moved back and forth. And, and I think that's because we try to rationalize where the line is. We try to go, well, yeah, God said that, but did he really mean it that way? Did he mean it that much? Did he mean it as black and white as he says it? Couldn't we? And so we start rationalizing and try to blur the lines a little bit. But, but God doesn't. His, he, he's got a set of rules that he wants us to do, and he wants us to love him and put him first. And any time we start going after other religions or focusing on other things than what he wants us to, he's not very forgiving about that. He kills nations. He kills people. He, he's pretty black and white about that. He loves us very much, but he expects us to love him back, and that love should drive us to do what he wants us to do. How many of you know this fella, just by sight? Brother Matt does, because he told me to look him up. (laughs) So maybe not by that picture. What about this one? What about this one? His name's Jack Phillips from Colorado. He's a cake maker. Owned a little cake shop. Same-sex couple came in and wanted to make a cake for their wedding. He said, no, it's against my faith. It's against my religion. I won't compromise. He went all the way to the Supreme Court and won because he wouldn't compromise. But would we, right? So we were, we were talking about that. We are around similar situations all the time. Where's our line? What's our compromise? He refused to compromise. He's getting targeted again. Now I believe it's something to do with um, change of sexual orientation or something like a man wants to... Transgender. transgender. And so now they're targeting him again, bringing him before the courts again. Going to probably go all the way to the Supreme Court again because he, won't, he, won't, he refuses to compromise on his faith. So he's fighting a huge battle for all Christians everywhere, uh, all the way to the Supreme Court to try to protect our rights. Where, where do we stand? Where do we compromise? Where do we bend the rules, look the other way, don't say anything? Well, what's the solution? <clears throat> he, said, he tells us that very quick, very easily there in Revelation chapter 2. Very quickly said, he says, repent, or change your hearts in this, this translation. And we understand what repent means, right? Turn away from, change your hearts, go, go a different direction. Very hard sometimes to do, but one little word. All, all you've got to do is change your heart and determine that that's not what you want to do. <clears throat> with, with changing your heart, you t- have to change your thinking. Remember, um, 2 Corinthians tells us to take all of our thoughts captive. 
And so once we've changed our mind and we're taking our thoughts captive, what happens when you, you, you put a lot of thought into something, right? That's the behavioral direction you go. You'll change your behaviors because you've changed your heart and you've changed your thinking. And the Bible tells us we're in full control of that. We're in full control of that to change our thoughts and to take them captive and to raise them up to Christ. To change them into a direction that follows Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians tells us. So that's what he's telling us here. Change your hearts. Change your way of thinking. Take your thoughts captive. And with that, your behavior will change. And then you can create new Christian uh, habits. What happens if you don't? Well, we don't have to wonder, because he tells us. What happens if you don't change? I will come to you quickly and fight against these people with a sword that comes out of my mouth. So the, he was introduced as having a sword that comes out of his mouth. And we know how powerful the sword was from Hebrews 4. He will come after those with that sword. Now whether these are the Christians that don't change or the people that were influenced the Christians, maybe Brother Jerry can tell us later because I'm not sure which one it meant. I don't think it matters because um, there's always um, the right people, right? So Israelite didn't do what they wanted. The collateral damage was 24,000 people died. Right, so 24,000 people died from a sickness that was caused by, other, by sin. Now, whether they were the exact people sinning or not, we don't know. But the, the, the story is, or the, the, the uh, result is, he's going to fix it. He's going to make it right. Whether that's now on this earth or judgment day, he's going to make it right. He's, he's going to understand those that have followed him, those who have not compromised, those who have kept the faith and finished the race. Everyone who hears this should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the hidden manna to everyone who wins the victory. I will also give to each one a white stone that has a new name written on it. And no one will know this name except the one <clears throat> who gets the stone. Hidden manna uh, is a unique uh, phraseology there. He talks about um, manna in John chapter 6. Obviously, we know the manna that was provided to the Israelites when, uh, uh, back in the Old Testament. But here in John chapter 6, it says, and it talks about that, it says, Our ancestors were given manna to eat in the desert. As the scriptures say, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I can assure you that Moses was not the one who gave your people bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. God's bread is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people said, Sir, from now on, give us bread like that. And Jesus said, I am the bread that gives life. No one comes to me, will, no, one, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. So this hidden, this, uh, this uh, hidden manna that he's talking about is obviously Jesus. And um, we're going we're gonna to be spiritually fed forever through, uh, through the manna from heaven. To everyone who wins the victory, the white stone and a new name. I believe the white stone symbolizes purity. You're going to be given a new, pure, heavenly name. 
uh, a new name written on it. You know, God uh, through time has given a lot of people new names, right? He called Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah. He called Saul, the Apostle Paul. He has given people new names throughout history. I think this one is probably your heavenly name. You're going to get a pure heavenly spiritual name one day if you do what he asks you to do and not compromise. So, the story of Pergamon. That's the, uh, the lesson of the morning. I appreciate your interest. I appreciate your time. Um, if, the, if, the, if the church can help you, if uh, through, the, through your thoughts through this lesson, you're like, man, there's some stuff that I, uh, there's, st- there's some stuff I compromise on. There's some stuff I might need help with. We, we stand ready to help you with that. We don't have, you don't have to come forward. You can uh, talk to one of the elders or Michael or uh, work it out with one of the brothers and sisters. But if there's something in your life that you're compromising on, get it fixed. Change your heart. Repent. Move away from that, uh, that thing that's against what God wants you to do. If we can help you with that, we stand ready to serve as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.